Please remain standing for the scripture reading this morning. We begin in the sixth chapter of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And then from the second chapter of Luke, where Jesus sat in the temple courts teaching the very teachers of the law. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This morning we focus on the value of ancient paths and text. And there's five things that I want to highlight about a person who's a person of the text. But first I want to talk about this season of the year as it's one of my favorite. And by that I don't mean the season of the liturgical calendar of Lent, which is a wonderful time of preparation and giving up things. And as I've been reminding you, Sundays are off days or feast days, so you can take off Sundays even during Lent. And it's not the wonderful season of championship basketball, which has our own David McNisky headed home now to prepare for the Duke championship game. Hopefully they win. Things around the office run much smoother when they do. It seems an ironic time. I spoke with David about that this week. In a time when you're giving up things in preparation for Lent, we are purging ourselves or binging on this reality of college basketball, first with Duke Carolina, then the ACC championship, and then three straight weeks of the tournament. It seems rather ironic. But another season that comes this time of year is a season that means a lot more to me, and that's the golf season. Every winter I take off playing golf because of the weather, the early sunlight, the constrictions of time and space. And then every spring, as the weather gets warmer and the days get longer, I get to return to this wonderful game that allows me an outlet not only physically, but to mentally check out from the troubles of this world. As I prepared for the golf season this year, last weekend we were uh, indoors all weekend with rain so I found myself seated at my computer pouring over hours and hours of golf video but it's important to realize that I've never been accurately trained in the game here and there small lessons little tweaks to my swing but the actual fundamentals of the game I do not know so as many of you realize when you look at your swing in comparison to the swing of a touring professional it is very humbling quickly i realized many of the things i do wrong so i began uh, to look at some of the things that i need to do and i endeavored into the dangerous arena of training videos for golf many of you have been down this path and much of it does not lead to good things but i stumbled across some training videos online that start with the very basics of the game If you're familiar with the golf game, you start with your grip, how you hold the club. And it's fairly specific, and there's things about pressure and where your hands go and how the face of the club is. And then you move to posture, and then you move to alignment, and then you move to stance. And there's all these different things that take place even before you've swung the club. 
Well, the way I used to endeavor back into the golf season was just to go out and hit balls on the range and manipulate my swing based on the trajectory of the ball. This year with the rain last week, I was pouring over video after video after video, and in painstaking detail, I analyzed my swing in comparison to that of these touring pros and found many things that we did differently. Interestingly enough, after adapting the core setup of my swing with the grip and the stance and the posture and the alignment, the rest of the swing fell into place. And they do, as, you, as they say, you just swing around your body. And the hands fall into place and the club head is square, square and you stay in the hitting zone. And so as I prepared this week for this sermon, I didn't just play golf this week. As I prepared this week for this sermon, I thought more and more about the text and the roles of the text in Jesus' life. And I want to highlight five things that we commonly talk about of the man of the text, a person of the text, someone that lives their life after the scriptures. First of all, they learn the text. We see this with Jesus at the age of 12 sitting in the temple courts, and already at this young age, he's learned the text enough to, to even teach the teachers of the law. Now, this was uncommon for his age, but the knowledge of Scripture was very common. They would have much of the books of the Bible memorized. The second is living the text. Jesus obeyed the text and lived it out, as we all know. He fulfilled the law. Third, he taught the text. We see him sitting in the temple courts, conveying these things even to the teachers of the law. Fourth, he prayed the text. There's many times where the words that Jesus speaks himself are scriptures. As we're familiar with the book of Matthew, we have so many footnotes at the bottom because so much of what Jesus is saying in this book is actually a quotation of the Old Testament. And then finally, we are obedient to the text to the point that we die to it. You see Jesus hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which, by the way, is Psalm 31. He's speaking scripture back to the Father. So as I was reflecting on these five characteristics of a person of the text this week, I started thinking more and more about what this was and how Jesus embodied these. But I kept coming back to a troublesome scripture, this idea and the reality that God did all the... Excuse me. That God did all these things, and in doing all these things, he followed the text. But my concern was that in doing all these things, we could actually miss the mark. Let me be more specific about that. In John 5, Jesus says to the leaders of of the church, the religious elite, the teachers of the law themselves, he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Let me say that again. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. As I thought more and more about that verse this week, it somewhat haunted me and troubled me. As I thought about these five characteristics of a person of the text, I thought that these religious leaders that Jesus spoke to himself did fulfill these five characteristics, or at least they thought they did. So I started to go back. In the same way that that Dinah this morning talked about the pictures of Jesus, and the most accurate one was likely the one in the context of Jesus' time, 
his culture, his part of the country, uh, the way he lived. In the same way, we have to understand Jesus and his scriptures in context of all these things. So there's a reality of his faith, his culture, uh, the Old Testament scriptures themselves. All these things give shape to Jesus. But as I thought about even these things, the Pharisees, whom Jesus rebuked in that John 5 passage, knew all these things as well. They knew this context of Jesus' culture better than us. They lived it, in fact. They knew the context of the Old Testament. They would quote it back with him. So I began to go back even further in the same way that I'm having to do with my golf swing. What, and ask myself, what is the setup that Jesus took before he even got to the text? What was going on with Jesus that put him in a place where he could live out these scriptures in such a way? And God kept bringing me back time and time again to this reality that Scripture speaks about in 1 John 4. He says, we love because God first loved us. There's this reality of the call of God that begins not with ourselves. In fact, Jesus says, you did not choose me. I came and chose you and appointed you to do, go and do these things. Look at how he treats the disciples when he sends out the 72. He gives them power and authority to do specific things before he sends them out. There's this reality that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And Jesus, in fact, says that himself to us in the scriptures. David talked about it some when he talked about abiding in the vine. And the more and more I prayed over this text the text, this topic of living with Jesus, the more and more I thought about these foundational realities that Jesus was, in fact, himself receiving all things from the Father before he poured out anything. And we are called to do no different than that. And so, while our commands call us to many things, the Shema we recited today, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's intimidating. That sounds exhausting. That sounds like it'll wear us all out. But there's a reality of being filled with the love of God and knowing his heart for us, his power for us through his spirit, being equipped with the things and the context for which Jesus lived, like we have begun talking about, knowing his role as a beloved son, living in the context of community, being filled with his spirit, being a man of prayer, being in worship, being in service. All these things contribute to this reality. And as I reflected more and more on the text, I began to realize and see how all these values that David has been leading us in tie together to be, in a sense, this basic setup. In the same way my grip and my posture and my stance and my alignment are. And as we step into these realities, it aligns us all in a correct way to live out what God has called us to do. And then the life of God begins to become that light and easy yoke, that easy burden that Jesus talks about. It's a reality of abiding. So I want to highlight a few things in what I believe is always our first call in life, and that is to receive from God. I want to highlight a few things that Jesus was able to do in his life. And I think that modeled and aligned himself in such a way to the Father that allowed him to receive and therefore live in the way that God called him to.
There's a reality that God will always equip us for the things that he calls us to. I'm sure we've heard the line, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And we've talked about some on Sunday mornings. Anytime God calls us to something, I would encourage you to turn right back around and say, yes, Father, give me the strength and all I need to do that. Because just as Jesus said, it is not I who do these things, it is actually the Father living in me. So I want to highlight a few things that Jesus did to receive from the Father. First, he had connection with the Father. He knew the Father. He spent time with him. There was this relationship they had. He would go off to be alone to be with the Father. He would receive things from the Father. Second, there's a reality that God's Spirit longs to dwell within us. God longs for this intimate connection with us that can only come through His Spirit. We see Jesus at the Jordan River receiving that Spirit that descends on Him like a dove. Jesus says, I have come but I must go. It is better that I go so I may send you the counselor. And what does he do? He, he has a lot of roles, but one of the things Jesus highlights is he leads us into all truth. When we're talking about living out the text, we need the Holy Spirit to understand that. So he's, he's connected to the Father. He's filled with the Spirit. And what else is going on in the river? He's hearing the voice of God. He's hearing God's voice over him say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, delight of my life. We can't, we can't hear that enough. That changes a person. And this was part of the context of the Jewish culture. When a child would get to the age of adulthood, his father would take him into town and he would say, This is my Son. He has my authority. Give him his signet ring. We know all these signs of authority that come from the story of the prodigal. God is recognizing Jesus as his beloved. And when we hear God say those same things over us, it changes us. A heart filled with love, the love of God, totally transforms us. There's a line from Dallas Willard. He says, the WWJD bracelets were great, but they don't give you the full story. He said, it helps to know what Jesus would have done in a situation, but if I haven't done the preparation that Jesus has done, then I won't be able to do the things that Jesus was able to do. I believe these things that we're bringing up that align us in such a way to receive from God help us to do that. Or to carry the golf metaphor a little bit further, it doesn't help me to know what shot Tiger Woods will hit in a certain situation if I haven't done the practice and preparation that allows me to hit that shot. It's just a wasted knowledge. And in the same way, I think there's a great danger in just picking up this book and trying to live out its commands without first being filled with the same things that Jesus was filled with. There's also a reality that I always come back to when I focus on the text. And that's one of the things that one of my mentors always said about reading the Bible. She talked about ways to prepare to read the text. She talked about praying first, repent, confessing your sins, asking for the Spirit to open your eyes. But the thing she always said that stuck out was, read the Bible as a love letter from God to you. As a love letter, it's not a to-do list. It's not a check-the-box of what we're going through. It's a loving relationship. The more I study the Scriptures, the more I am convinced that the main goal of Jesus with his disciples for three years was to reveal the heart of the Father to them. 
If you go home today and read John 17, Jesus' prayer to the Father regarding the disciples, he says, I have been faithful with the ones you have given me. And what I think of when I read that is, I have revealed to them your heart. You can also think of it when he starts to call them friends instead of servants, because he reveals the master's business. Well, what is the master's business? But to reconcile all things to himself. There's also this reality when we read Scripture as a love letter that we need to know the writer who's writing it. I've had 34 years on this planet with my father. If he writes me a note, I know the context, I know the tone, I can probably tell you what he's referring to. If you do not know my father and you read that same note, it's probably not going to make sense. In the same ways with the Scriptures, we contextualize them with Jesus' culture with the time he lived, with the language, with the Old Testament text with which rooted the things. But we also, and probably most importantly, need to contextualize this with the heart of the Father behind it. And I am more and more convinced that without the Spirit to witness and testify to our spirit that we are his beloved child, as Paul writes about in Romans, we will never be able to understand that reality. So, I encourage you, as you begin to live out the text more and more, to approach it in the same way. Go through the basics. Practice these things. Make sure you have them down before you even begin. So you're not manipulating your swing to try and get a correct ball flight, hurting your back, doing things like that. There's a reality that we are always first called to receive from God. First through connection with Him, then through His Spirit, And finally, hearing from him. And the more and more I study the scriptures, the more I believe that these are the necessary things in which Jesus lived in to be able to live out and embody this text. Amen.